Hi, everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where someone said it was spring, but it was in the 20s this morning. I have another sinus infection, and it snowed this week, so so far spring is a complete letdown. And I'm sure Avrami will speak to the snow falls, the totals in Baltimore in a couple of minutes. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. By the way, Avram, I have to tell you, I don't think you were being honest with me before. Now that I'm really listening to myself, I'm not sure I've sounded worse. Have I sounded worse? Yeah, that's why I asked if maybe we could say one of your brothers was sitting in for you. Yeah, no. (laughs) Or Stephen, for that matter. Yeah, no. Wow. Listening to myself, this isn't pretty. I'm going to hear from Mark Zomick later because after the last show when I didn't sound great, he's like, you really shouldn't have done that. And I respect that. And I thought it was really, you know, it was good advice. But clearly, I'm a slow learner because here I am doing the exact same thing twice. Good morning, folks. Thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer. And really nasal general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, right after Charlie and right before Nahum's live lunch, as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. God, is that true? Coming to you from the home of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, I am joined by Avram. What's going on, Avrami? How are you? Well, I know how well, you clearly, are. Well, <laughs> clearly, check that off your to-do list. Yeah, you know exactly how I am. All's well over here on this yeah. side. <laughs> As you said to me before, Although please. you're aiming this way. So. <laughs> well, when we're actually having a conversation and there's no, you know, glass board in between the two of us, um, I'm just telling you that you shouldn't, my car is right now like a human Petri dish. I drove here. First of all, it took me two hours to get in this morning. You know when, what I learned this morning on the LIE? The people who manage the LIE, and I use that term loosely, really learn how to manage expectations of their drivers because I got on at the Cross Island LIE interchange which is pretty far away from the Midtown Tunnel. And only when you're about, I don't know, eight miles away from the tunnel do they actually start giving you time amounts as to how far you are from the tunnel. Until then, it just says delays ahead. Delays ahead. They don't want you to have unfair expectations as to how long it's going to take you to get to that tunnel, and they don't want to hear about it afterwards. So it's like what I say to my kids, soon, soon. We'll be there soon. So it was only when we were eight miles away, we, meaning me, eight miles away, and it still said 30 minutes. I was like, man, it's a long trek. Yeah, so two hours later I got in. Luckily you're in the later uh, slot, not the early slot this morning, huh? I know, but you know what the irony is, is that I left my house earlier. That happens every single time. I left my house at 7.20. I got into a spot at 9.15 here. It's ridiculous. Whatever. Almost as long as my trip. (laughs) (laughs) But this is why I take mass transit. But I couldn't take mass transit when I sounded like this, because then I'm that guy nobody wants to sit next to. It's just rude. You know, I liked it when we had that tower of CDs here. (laughs) Do you think the CTs were going to protect you from this? I'm like typhoid Mary. It was pretty high. (laughs) Yeah, not that high. If Mary Mel Wallach once a week is just not enough for you... Do what Mark Brew did. You can friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, miriam at nachumsegel.com. I'm not uh, going to be able to respond to you during the show. Not being rude, just being honest. But I will get back to you afterwards. Please also follow us on Twitter, nachumsegelnet, all one word, and Miriam L. Wallach, all one word. Um, I just want to wish a mazal tov. My first, guess, my first guess is actually on the line, so I think we're going to move things around, and we'll do the fortune cookie later, and we'll do the national holidays later. But I do want to wish a mazal tov first off to Yaffa and Michael Eisenberg of Jerusalem. They are my cousins, and as we speak, or actually it just might have ended, Yaffa and Michael celebrated a Hachnasa Sefer Torah, or a Hachnasat Sefer Torah, which they donated to the Israeli Navy, which I think is incredibly, incredibly cool. And why? It is in memory of our grandfather, Sonny Eisenberg, who is affectionately known as Poppy, and uh, it's on the occasion of his 20th yard site. Our Poppy was a captain in the U.S. Navy during World War II. He was actually stationed in the South Pacific. Um, many, many stories came out of that. And both actually, 
both my dad and my husband's dad also served on behalf of the U.S. Armed Forces uh, when they were younger. Clearly not now. I think that's pretty unusual. But a um, mazal tov to Michael and Yaffa. I really think it's an incredible thing that you did. Lezecha nishmat papi, so to speak. And um, it's really quite beautiful. And I know that I am proud here, and they are proud there. They are certainly enjoying the, the uh, celebration. As we got pictures from Israel this morning on my phone, uh, it looked pretty pretty incredible, and I'm looking forward to reading the speech or hearing the speech, depending on which file I receive. Anyway, my first guest is on is on the line. I don't want to make her wait. Um, she is um, esteemed and world-renowned author, Rehoma, Rih- oh my God, my mouth is killing me, Ruchoma King Foyerman. She grew up in Maryland, and when she was 17, all right, Maryland, relax, relax, relax. Shoot, you already have a new fan here. When she was 17, she bought a one-way ticket to Israel to seek her spiritual fortune. She's the author of Seven Blessings. That was her celebrated first novel about matchmaking. It earned her much, much praise and even dubbed her the Jewish Jane Austen by the Kirkus Review, uh, which is a pretty esteemed um, or a wonderful compliment, I should say. Her stories and essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Forward, Moment, Tablet, and many other publications. She's the winner of the 2012 Moment Magazine Short Fiction Prize, selected by the novelist Walter Mosley. She lives in New Jersey with her family, and she is here, or I should say on the line, to discuss her newest release. It's called In the Courtyard of the Kabbalist. And good morning, Ruchama. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, you don't sound nasal to me. Oh, that's <laughs> sweet. That's really sweet. But I guarantee you my mom is going to call me a little bit later and say, you sound terrible. Uh, <laughs> it's one thing when my parents listen to my show, then I hear about it for a while. Anyway, a pleasure to have you on this morning. And, and also just thank you to you for your patience and being accommodating for, for, for the slot, etc. I know you and I had trouble coordinating, but I really appreciate it. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. So tell me about your appearance that you had this week. I um, mean, at the Fairlawn Jewish Center? Correct. Oh, it was uh, wonderful. I There were about uh, 40 to 50 women there, and I spoke about my novel. And I don't know, uh, it's it's exciting bringing such a, a deeply Jewish book to just different communities uh, all across America, and I'm, I'm loving it, and I'm getting a wonderful reception. No, I imagine. I, I mean, I finished reading the book, and I was really very, very taken with it. Um, there are so what many. T- what took you about it? Ah, so I- I'm going to tell you that, um, as people, as some of my listeners know, sometimes I read too. Uh, my close reading of a particular text is often a little bit too close for people. They think that I'm overanalyzing things. So I apologize in advance to my listeners if they roll their eyes and they're like, "Oh, Miriam, it wasn't such a big thing." But the first thing that really struck me is that um, one of the main characters or supporting characters who was so influential is Rabbi Yehuda. And, mm-hmm. um, and besides the fact that he was an incredible, incredible figure, it struck me that you chose the name Yehuda for him. And I'm a believer that authors do not choose things randomly. So I want to know what the, what the, the, um, your, your thinking or your, your naming, the rationale behind your naming him Yehuda. I'm so sorry to disappoint you, Miriam. No, no, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> don't do it, don't do it. Nachum, but uh, his name was Rabbi Nachum. I thought that would have been um, more appropriate because of the aspect of comfort. But um, I really had to be thinking of my secular readers. It's published by a, a totally secular press. Right. And 
I think that people would like to match them. It just is not. It sounds like nachos. It just wouldn't work. Yeah, trust um, me. I work I for. I work my, for a guy I think named it was Nathan. my agent even who came up with Yehuda. Really, Anna Oldswanger. Yeah. So uh, I'm so sorry to disappoint you there, but I do happen to love the name Yehuda. Um, it's a fabulous name. No, don't worry. Bible, we'll, thank God. We'll come up with a reason for it by the end of the wonderful. show. We'll come up with a re- with another reason for it by the end of the show. But uh, trust me, <laughs> as a person who, as I just. As I just said, as a person who works for a person named Nahum, yes, I have. Uh, we, we. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend. No, not at all. I was about not in the least bit. I was about to say. Trust me, I've heard every terrible, you know, pronunciation of his name um, in the last couple of years. So if you were shying away from that kind of um, mispronunciation, it was a good move. <laughs> Thank you. If it was, if you were concerned about that, tell me how the because you mentioned the fact that the that the publishing house is a secular pub, publishing house. Tell me how they took to your novel, which again is very, very um, intrinsically Jewish and doesn't um, transliterate or translate a number of the terms in there. It's like you get it or you don't get it. Well, what I what I like to do with translation is to be very sneaky. I I put it in there in ways that so the people are getting the translation, but they don't know it. Right, and people can get it through context. There's very few words I think that uh, somebody who isn't Jewish would not be able to understand. And you know, it has been. It's been getting, uh, you know, places like the Dallas Morning News, Wall Street Journal, uh, Bergen Record. These are you know very secular publications, and no one has mentioned anything so far about not being able to understand the words. I did get that with my first novel, Some Blessings. Some people felt annoyed by the number of words that could be understood. So I try to be more careful this time. That's interesting. Was it, um, does it, as a writer, does it um, impede your writing process to have that in mind? Um, I think that when I'm doing that first draft, I'm not, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just trying to get it down. And as I'm at the 10th, 11th draft, hmm. then I'll be uh, more aware of it. So it's not something that's going to impede the writing process. Because I know at some point or another I'll, I'll deal with it. Let's actually let's, I, let's. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on. No, no you you go on. Uh, I was going to say let's talk about your writing process for a second because I always think that it's interesting for the listeners to hear um, just how a novel comes about because each author has a different process. Okay. Uh, so do you want to know where I got the idea from? I want to know where uh, you got from the idea from. But also, did you start? Did you did you have the ending? And I'm this is not a spoiler alert. I am not letting anybody know, know what happens in the end. But did you have that concept first and work backwards? Because it's definitely an unusual ending. I think that I'm very much driven by place. I had spent time when I was in my twenties. I lived for ten year, years in Israel. And among, you know, aside from dating and teaching Torah and learning Torah, I, I visited Kabbalists. And I, so I definitely felt compelled to capture the courtyard of such an unusual atmosphere, um, of the courtyard of the Kabbalist. And, and because I'm so driven by place, I was also, when I was writing the novel, I was taking a Torah class, which was uh, focused on the Beit HaMikdash, or Beit HaMikdash. <laughs> and because um, I saw that you you go both Ashkenazi and Sephardic pronunciation, so I'll take your lead, Miriam. There we go. And and so um, the two became somehow commingled in my mind, and so I think I definitely had that idea of where the ending was going to take place. It was going to be in the you know the hotel vicinity, uh, and I knew what I, what what I thought was going to happen. But to be honest, the last 
Parag episode, which is the most unusual aspect, that did not hit me until after maybe, you know, 20, 20 revisions. Really? Yes, that last paragraph did not hit me. That's like the element of surprise. That's the wonderful part of writing where, you know, you can have a pretty good idea where you want to go, but there's some part where you have to not over-plan or over-predict because then, you know, you're going to suck the life out of it. It's very interesting, though, because to to think that that there's both an element of surprise for you as the author who's crafting this novel and for the reader who is going to come upon the last you know, page or two and be totally taken aback as to what happens. Well, were you taken aback in a good way? Oh, <laughs> it's a hundred percent, but it was more like, I'm not even sure if I'm going to articulate this correctly, but it's interesting. It was an unusual experience to be taken aback at a place where I envisioned myself standing and I had been a couple of months ago. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's right. a, it's a place where so many Jews have been. Again, it takes place in the Kotel area, and I am not going to um, divulge any secrets, but you can pick up the book on your own and enjoy it yourself. But um, to know that I've been standing there, that I've been there, and to imagine this part of the book unfolding where I could have been one of the people just standing in that area, to me was... was um, was just, again, this wonderful element of surprise and something that in realistic fiction, I mean, there's nothing about this book that is unrealistic. And so it allows the author, it allows the reader to really partake in the story. It's not fanciful, which I think is great because you begin to engage and imagine in a very real kind of way. Does that make sense? I love it. I love what you're saying. It's as if, you know, my novel is, is commentary on the whole Kotel experience, and you're telling me that it's so rich that you, when you were even at the Kotel, it made you think of my novel. I mean, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and I mean that that you would re envision your own Kotel experience because of my novel. That's that's exactly what I'm hoping to accomplish. Well, then I guess so, we can check that off because it definitely it definitely works, and I think that that also is going to be one of the things that draws in other readers because they'll feel or envision themselves the way I did while they're reading this passage. Great. That 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 to me was that to me was a big part of it um as well. Tell me also um you you mentioned about your time spent in Israel. How much of of your writing comes out of those experiences? Well, I'll say 95% there's place. So I can't differentiate between place and uh and non-reality. So place, I, I don't know what percentage of my novel <laughs> takes place. I'm not sure I'm being, too, sorry, I'm being a little incoherent, but I'll just put it pretty easily. 95% of it is invented, mm-hmm. and 5% I grabbed from real life. I'll give you an example. In the novel, there is a young woman who is doing the 40-day pagula, right. 40 days of prayer at the hotel. Right. And... Um, and she actually she goes to the hotel to pray for her her besherit, and um, at the end of the forty days, instead of getting answers, she gets sacked from the one job she's ever liked, <laughs> and she's pretty furious about that. She comes back to the hotel to discuss it with the assistant and to pester him why she didn't get answered. You know, we can all relate to that. Why didn't we get answered? And he has a, uh, an unusual response to her. He tells her to go back and just pray for herself, only for herself which is a bit of a shocker because we're always told that when mm-hmm. you pray for other people, um, 
it's preferable to do that. Right. Um, and so this is based on something in real life where um, a young woman I knew, I was uh, working at a yeshiva. She was also working there. We both were quasi-teachers. And she um, she was having trouble getting married. And she did the 40-day segula, and it didn't work. And she went back to the person who, who had sent her. I think it was Diane Fisher. He was a very big uh, posek, a judge. And he said that it was preferable to pray for others. In this situation, he said, just pray and focus on yourself. Hmm. And he guaranteed that she would... Uh, that she would uh, be answered. Wow. And I was there when it happened. She met the guy on the 40th day. No way. And she, and she married him, <sighs> and they had a beautiful life together. And I guess the real question is, you know, I did the 40-day Segula thing, too. <laughs> How could I not after that? Right. But I, but I only did it once, so maybe it would have worked better if I had gone back and done it <laughs> right. It could have spared me many years of dating. No, I think that, but I think you're bringing up something also that's very interesting about that. That is a, um, a I don't want to say a theme, but a note that's carried over in the book also is this idea of of giving of oneself that ultimately betters um, betters you as the individual is making sure that you are connecting yourself or thinking of others. Um, before you're thinking of yourself, and then you internally or you as a result benefit from that experience. And I think that some of the characters are surprised, or specifically Isaac, who's the main character, is surprised at just how beneficial it is to him personally to be advocating on behalf of others. It's very true. I, I think that um, uh, it's a beautiful insight, Miriam. Um, and it's something that was definitely part of it, but it wasn't something that I was conscious of as I was writing it. But there's that whole element of you know, when people in relationships, we complete each other. Right. When you're when you're healing other people, I mean, it's become almost a truism. You know, you, you that you are healing yourself as well. No. Um, I mean, you see that in all kinds of situations. I think sure. that I think it was Ramosha Feinstein said, if anyone is, I think it was him. I hope I'm not misquoting, but if the people are having, let's say, issues, theological issues, one of the best things they can do for people having those kinds of issues are to get involved in cure of an outreach. Mm. And, you know, there is such a, you know, a reciprocal relationship with giving. And, uh, you know, I right. think that's, that's the idea. No, I, I, I hear it completely. Ruchama King Foreman, who's the author of In the Courtyard of the Kabbalist, joins us now on That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. One thing I also thought was very interesting, and this is not a spoiler because this is actually in the blurb, which I thought was a funny note, is that you make sure to mention that Isaac, again, who's this main character, is an eczema sufferer. <laughs> which um which you can't tell me was random. You just can't. Like don't don't spoil it no, for no, me. No, 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 that was not random. Okay, sorry. Good. Okay, good. So let's talk about that because w- when I first read when I first read the blurb and literally, I mean, it's it's on the back. It talks about that, you know, it mentions that he's an eczema sufferer and I laughed. I'm like, okay, it's totally not random and it's a detail that somebody that obviously not somebody, but the author or the publisher wanted the reader to pick up on. So tell me why eczema and tell me why we need to know about it. Um, well, I don't know if I would put so much weight on it, but it's, it is significant. I think it's also what's just a little bit my own personal tick with writing is I do tend to choose men with physical problems. Ah. In my first novel, my, um, my main char- one of my main characters had these uncontrollable twitches that came over him at any time of the day. Um, Mustafa has also a very unusual uh, physical situation. His neck 
he's an extreme case of torticollis. So his head is crocked, is crooked over his one shoulder permanently. Right. I mean, he can't even look at himself in the mirror. Right. And so, uh, and so here too, um, I, I, um, eczema. I find that I'm able to enter my male characters because they're, you know, I'm a woman, they're a man. <laughs> so right. I find that through the portal of pity. Um, I'm able to often to enter my character, so I do give them sometimes these physical ticks, and um, and they are they. It's not random. I think that somebody with eczema is someone who's very constrained and uncomfortable in their own body, and they're uncomfortable in life, and there's a sense of being trapped mm. uh, by their skin, and that is that is my character Isaac. He is someone who's. You know, the kind of person, somebody put it this way, you have to pull to the end of the diving board, and even then you have to push him off because he'd never jump himself. Right. So he, he's very much trapped by his his physical body and his emotional uh, situation. But also, his, that, his yeah. oh, I'm sorry, but his eczema also begins to, um, I don't want to say correct itself, but it, be, it begins to wane as part of his stress. Yes. Um, is relieved. So we have these two male characters who have these, you know, physical, I don't want to say limitations, but they have these um, physical issues with which they need to contend. And then you have your female character, Tamar, your heroine, so to speak, with her flaming red hair. And <laughs> and I will tell you that um, while she doesn't have, let's say, the physical limitations of the two men or the physical issues that they have to contend with, as a mother of daughters with red hair, red hair... <laughs> is its own issue to contend with. And I saw in her some of that fiery personality that is characteristic of a redhead and stereotypical of a redhead, but not, mm. not without its, you know, not without good cause because redheaded girls are feisty. They just are. And so when I heard Tamar, you know, be, I don't want to say aggressive because it's not the right word but be more to the front and pushing herself forward and advocating for herself and taking charge and telling things like it is to me it was like yeah she's a redhead and she <laughs> and she and and again kudos to her and kudos to you for writing her that way but she in her own way has to contend with her red hair i you know <laughs> i'm telling you this is what I happens have to tell i you you as a mother of redheads you have more insight to redhead than I do, uh, um, but we that, should that's talk. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that again, I I need to connect to my characters. I need to be able to see them throughout, so they can't be bland characters. And so the the redness definitely was part of her spunkiness. Mm-hmm. I guess it's also like a a holdover from the Scarlett O'Hara days. I always no, actually, was she a redhead, Scarlett O'Hara? I don't know if she was, but I, don't my know. Mind, I always saw her as a redhead. Right. I think also because of her name. And um, I think that I had a problem with Tamar. It wasn't so much the redhead, but the fact that she's beautiful. Mm. It was the first time I had written a beautiful character. And I have to admit that initially Tamar was a, an entire point of view in the novel. It was Mustafa, it was Isaac, and Tamar. And I spent you know years developing her. But in the end, she wasn't as compelling as I would have liked her to be in terms of her interior monologue. Um, and part of the problem was that she was too beautiful. Interesting. 
I found that sometimes I don't, I need to, like, again, have a little bit of a sense of pity for my characters, and I couldn't, my prejudices that I imagine that beautiful women don't suffer as much as the rest of us. Um, so something about that made her, to me, not as compelling as the others. That's why I'm actually thrilled to hear that you found her you know, very interesting and intriguing. Well, I'm definitely uh, taken. I'm definitely taken with redheads. That's for sure. That's something I've mm-hmm. I've uh, admitted on the air a number of times. So that is um, that's a davar yadua, as we would say. But let's talk about Mustafa. We actually only have a couple of minutes left, and there are two things I want to make sure to talk about. The third main character being Mustafa, who um, is an Arab who works on the Temple Mount, and again, who has this um, crooked neck that um, impedes his ability to be part of the community, to be accepted by his family. Um, And he is a very sympathetic character. And uh, I wonder if you've received any pushback by the fact that the Arab in in your book is the sympathetic character. I have from all kinds of unusual places. I think that, um, firstly, he's, he's also unusual. He's in that he takes trash off the Temple Mount, and there's the whole motif of the whole plot line of of who does an ancient artifact belong to, the right. person who finds it or the or the people whose story it tells. Mm. So um I um to me this was very much like of a a a time kind of tale because it really did highlight the plight of what's going on um in in the Beitamigdash and in the in the Temple Mount today with the excavations and the Waukees. And, you know, I mean, there's just so much Temple Mount focus throughout the world. Uh, but um, I'm sorry, your, your question was... No, whether or not you received pushback by... Oh, yeah. So what I did was, what I, the pushback that I got was from both my extreme right-wing friends who were angry with me for portraying mm. such a sympathetic Arab character, and from, you know, I guess the left side, which felt that I had... You know, I was portraying an Arab character who is shunned by his mother right. and his community because he looks so grotesque. And people felt that I had portrayed Arab culture in a way which was just, you know, too cruel. Right. And that actually brings me to my next question, which is something that was on my mind, is the different ways that mothers are um, or being oh, portrayed here. Correct. And now, here's the thing, is that whenever anyone tells me, uh, you know, you portrayed... How could you portray an Arab mother this way? Well, how could I portray a Jewish father this way? Um, Isaac's father is pretty horrible. Um, uh, and you have many unpleasant characters who come to the courtyard. It's filled with like one big dysfunctional family. Right. You, know, you have abusive grandmothers, narcissistic uh, rabbis, right. and singles with horrible toxic breasts. And, you know, you've got the whole range there. And you've got that the Israeli policeman who's pretty awful. Mm. And yet I do um, hear a little, I think that at least with the um, Israeli side, the Jewish side, you do have the amazing Kabbalist, which redeems everyone. But there was not such a figure on the um, Arab side. Uh, And so at times I, you know, people come down a little harshly on me Mm. and wonder why didn't I portray, you know, more positive Arab characters. But to me, my mind... Mustafa was practically not like a Kabbalist, but he was such an amazingly sympathetic character. I didn't think it was necessary, and I did not. My goal was not to portray Arab society in, in cruel terms, but I needed to give enough motivation to explain 
what in the world would make an Arab man take that first time, take that bus over and, and take a bus to meet the capitalist. He had to be pretty desperate. He'd have to be pretty much up against the wall to do that. Right. So it was that motivation, which is why I portrayed it that way. Right. And I, I mean, I, I, I completely hear it, and I'm sure that that is actually something as an author you really struggled with before putting this to print, is, is the way... Um, you know, different things were going to be portrayed and, and the way the, the, that each reader was going to interact with the text. I mean, I, I had a lot of anxiety actually about portraying the, um, the Israeli, uh, police officer in Shani? such harsh terms. Uh, Shani. Yeah. I remember like weeping after thinking, cause like, you know, to my mind, the Israeli army and the police are all, you know, heroes, uh, in my mind. And, and yet, you know, it would pain me to show them doing this and, um, I'm not going to say what they were doing, <laughs> but whatever it is that they were doing, it has been borne out in recent news in the past month or two, exactly what I suspected the Israeli police officer of doing. That's what happened in 1999. So, um, and it just came out to light literally a month or two ago. Uh, so um, I, I did feel somewhat vindicated. It's interesting. I didn't, I wasn't taken aback at all by that portrayal simply because to me, it's reassuring to know that the Israeli armies and the police officers are, are tough and about business. And I don't, I didn't, I didn't take it the wrong way at all. And actually, one of my favorite characters, um, even though it is a minor, minor role, um, I'm not even sure if I can, if, is, is somebody that's met in jail. Um, oh, is that which one? Actually, it was the drug dealer. Uh huh. Um, whose name I'm actually skimming through the book at this second. Um, whose name escapes me at the moment. But Nisim maybe. Nisim maybe. Yeah. And I I, I was very ta- or Tommy. 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 That's it. Tommy. Because I because as soon as I saw the name Tommy, my first instinction was to go to the Who and say Tommy, can you hear me? Um, right. So his, <laughs> that's that's just what I do. But Tommy Tommy to me was was a wonderful character. And with this, I think we have to close. Um, because he turns to Isaac and he says, um, when he has this moment where he says, my heart, you know, that he's convinced he is not going to heaven. And he says, um, can, you know, basically, can I ever be redeemed for what I did to this woman for the drugs that I sold her because she in turn harmed her child? And to me, that was such a raw moment. Like that was a real moment of repentance. And um, and I loved that moment. And I'm not sure that it's going to hit every single person, every reader, the way it hit me. But I was really struck by it. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. Well, uh, Ruhama, I, 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 I hope you'll join us again on the air. And I, I look forward to, I guess, your next novel. But I wonder if you're taking a break between novels or if you started writing your next one. Um, I'm working on short stories. And I'm also, uh, I have two children's books that are coming out. And I have like a, a novel idea that's percolating. But before I go, I just want to know if you could just mention to people that I'm going to be speaking uh, at the Upper West Side Barnes and Noble. Oh, fantastic! On April 24th. That's a Thursday night at seven o'clock. April 24th. That's like, a, that's like you know two nights after Pesach. Right. And so I'd love it if people could come out. Maybe just mark it down. And that's on. That's the Barnes and Noble. What was it on? Seventy eighth and Broadway. Eighty eighty third. Eighty third. 83rd and Broadway. Well, fantastic. And Kola Kavo to you. It's really a wonderful novel. And um, as soon as those children's books come out, please send them our way because there's nothing I'd love to talk more about than children's books. 
Oh, wonderful. Okay, well, you've been fabulous. Thank you so much, Miriam. I loved uh, talking with you. Absolutely my pleasure. Ruchama King Fireman in the the courtyard of the Kabbalist. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And my next guest is somebody who has been on before and recently ended up back in the New York Times. Um, (laughs) Rabbi Jeremy Stern is the executive director of ORA. And um, Rabbi Stern, good morning. Good morning, Miriam. It's really great to be back on. No, it's, it's my pleasure to have you, and I am looking forward to the times within the next time when uh, you're in the New York Times and the article talks about something like every Aguna situation has been resolved as at the hands of Rabbi Stern. God, God, not necessarily in my hands, but God willing, that should happen soon. Exactly. So let's talk about what was covered last week in the New York Times, because frankly, there was a lot of information here, and some of which I think... I, I, I think I'm correct to saying this was would be unbeknownst to a, to a to the Orthodox community as to being a part of what could happen with an Aguna situation. Right. So the case that was covered in the Times is uh, the Kin case. Israel Mayor Kin. He used to go by Mayor. Now he goes by Israel Kin. Or Israel Mayor um, has refused to give his wife Lana a get for over nine years. Um, and uh, what's particularly uh, uh, terrible or just unique about this case, but but uh, what really I think grabbed the attention of the Times was the fact that there is one um, I guess we'd refer to him as a renegade rabbi, huh. um, a, a, a corrupt rabbi in uh, in Muncie. It's it's one individual who works sometimes with another another rabbi in Muncie, uh, and so he this one rabbi is not accepted by any other rabbinical court. Um, he claims he has his own rabbinical court. He's not accepted by any other rabbinical court. He's a persona non grata in the uh, in the in the best in the world in the rabbinical court world. Uh, and he supposedly has issued a heter mayor levanim, a permission of a hundred rabbis for mayor to remarry, even though he has not given his first wife a get, which is a clear violation of halacha. To issue such a permission, the get is supposed to be ready and available for the wife to pick up unconditionally at any time, and that is not the case in this situation. So not only did this rabbi issue this permission for uh, for mayor to remarry, but he stands by his word, and to the best of our knowledge, he actually flew into Las Vegas to officiate at this wedding. Just totally shocking to me. I mean, totally shocking, but I want to make the following point, which I saw on Facebook before we, before we, you know, dive, go into other details, which is that somebody posted on Facebook in, res, in response to the article, um, just saying, before we, before we dice everyone and before we behead everyone, is there another side to this story? That was the question posted on Facebook. So I'm asking you, is there another side to this story? So there, uh, I'll, I'll, two elements in, an, in answering that question. Number one is that you can go on, online and you can find these quote-unquote anonymous blogs, these blog rants uh, online, lanakin.blogspot.com. Uh, There's one against me directly, Jeremy Stern from ora.blogspot.com, a whole bunch of them. Wow. And we actually have them on this website that we've created for this case, freelana.org, F-R-E-L-O-N-N-A.org. Um, and you, we, we list those websites there. And these are all quote-unquote anonymous blogs that were actually created by the recalcitrant husband himself, Israel Mayor Kidd. And so it, 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 it astounds me that people are sometimes confused, you know, who to trust. On the one hand, 
anonymous ranting blog. Right. On the other hand, a credible organization which has serious organic backing, a, uh, a case which Rav Schachter has has uh, has weighed in on and signed the Seder, the Order of Contempt against the husband. Um, and the facts are very clear. And something that I think we actually touched on last time I was on your show uh, was this issue of Get refusal is never justified because it's a form of domestic abuse. Abuse is never justified. It's never excusable. Uh, it's never okay to beat your wife. And it's never okay to refuse to give your wife a get. And so if Mayor has claims about money or custody or what have you, he is free to go to a civil court, to a, to a basin, to a rabbinical court, and have those issues heard. But it's never okay to refuse to give a get, and what he's doing is unilaterally withholding the get in order to extract concessions from Lana. And in previous negotiations, the figure of a half a million dollars has come up in exchange for the get or, uh, or, or to shared custody, um, even though he left their marital home and their son and moved from Muncie to Los Angeles on his own accord. Uh, and so the child cannot live in two sides of the country simultaneously. Um, you know, things along along those lines. And so there is no other side when it comes to abuse. Debt refusal is never justified. Uh, so that, you know, with regards to finances, custody, sure, there can be two sides. He has his story, she has hers. You know, the courts have already decided these things, but okay. Um, but with regards to uh, refusing to keep it, there's, there's never an excuse. I was... Um... I was also very, very, I don't want to say very surprised, but very impressed by the presence at this, um, at this wedding that took place in Vegas, um, by the Los Angeles community that traveled. Now, I, I make it sound like it's all the way across the world, though it's not, but still. That's it, a, it's like a four and a half hour drive. Right. It's, it's not, it's, it's not, you know, all that close. Yeah. Right. It's it, not, it, it's, it, it's not an insignificant drive. And they made yeah. that effort in order to protest this and say, you can go out of state and you can do this, you know, in Vegas or, or anywhere else. But the bottom line is, is that we, that the Jewish community is not going to support you. I thought that that was very powerful. And to add to that, half the half the attendees at the rally, or a third of the attendees of the, of, at the rally, were rabbis. The rabbis in Las Vegas and and, and some rabbis from LA, uh, you know, one flew in, one drove in um, to to come to this rally and protest what Israel Mayor Kane is doing. Um, and so, I, the rabbinic world does not sanction this. What's going on here is a clear violation of halacha. Uh, the problem is, and, and this is something that, that I mentioned in the, in the article, the Times article itself, is that, you know, outside of an established rabbinical court system like they have in Israel, any man can call himself a rabbi, and any three rabbis can call themselves a rabbinical court. Uh, and that's what's gone on here. And the only, the, the respect that we have of rabbis and batezin, of rabbinical courts, is based upon a communal consensus. Uh, that's how it works out, outside of Israel. And so, for example, the Desmond of America or Mahoma Hira in, uh, in Muncie, these are well-established Bakhidin, which are well-regarded because the community regards them. This one rabbi is, is, is a renegade. No one recognizes him. He's not respected at all. Huh. Um, and so, it, 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 just to go back to the original point, it, I think it, it made an important statement that so many rabbis came, came out for this rally uh, in particular. Why do you think that... that- news outlets like the New York Times put this on the front page. Why is this front page news for all the world to see? It's a good question. Um, you know, we were discussing this uh, uh, in our office a bit. 
um, which is what interests the Times in particular. Often the Times will have the choose a freaks articles, right? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, put so, that so, on a bumper I'll, sticker, uh, Rabbi. Yeah. Refer to them. Uh, I actually think this was less of a choose a freaks article and more of this guy is a jerk article. Mm. Um, and that's 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 my feeling. And just because it's so outrageous, it's outrageous that we're coming in on ten years that he's held or captive, and now he's having his, you know, trace cake and eating it too. Right. Uh, so not only is it, he's holding her captive and finds extraordinary for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but he's also getting remarried and moving on with his life. It just highlights the, the contrast here and, and how, severe what he, how, how severe it is what, what he's doing. I'm looking at this picture, by the way, that was featured on the front page of the New York Times, and I'm looking at this woman, and all I keep on thinking is, what are you thinking? What are thinking? you thinking? And Avrami, by the way, Avrami's sitting here going, yeah, exactly. What is she thinking? Yeah, so to the, we, we tried to do some re- research on her, Daniela Barbosa, um, Mayor's uh, uh, additional wife. Um, and to the best of our knowledge, this is based upon the research that we did, and I can't verify this beyond a bunch of Google searches that we did. Uh, she is from Brazil and a convert. Uh, so, you know, she she is perhaps more susceptible, not being, uh, you know, a native of, of this country and perhaps not being a native English speaker and not being native to the Jewish community and, and, and halacha, that a mayor, uh, you know, has manipulated her and she's a victim in this as well to a certain degree. She has to take responsibility and she should wake up and realize. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, people marry uh, people who otherwise have, have, uh, have you know, uh, poor histories. Um, and it's, it's shocking but I think that's what Mayor perhaps is doing. His book is preying on someone who is more susceptible and doesn't necessarily have a community or even a family supporting her in her life decisions. Rabbi Jeremy Stern, the executive director of ORA, joins us now on the air. You know, Rabbi Stern, the last time I had you on after we talked about the uh, Gitzel situation and Baruch Hashem, that has been resolved. Yeah, thank God. And, and I, just, just to say that, um, I strongly feel that it was that New York Post article, front page New York Post article, which really started uh, the pressure uh, and ramped up the pressure against the, the former recalcitrant husband. Um, and I'm not going to mention his name because the case is now resolved. Right. Uh, and that really ramped up the pressure against him. Um, and our hope is that this Times article will really wake, you know, wake people up to this and, and, and put a spotlight on what Israel Mayorkin is doing and ramp up the pressure uh, for this case as well. And God willing, you know, I, I, I will invite myself back in, in <laughs> you know, a few months now um, when our, should be even sooner, should be tomorrow. But whatever it is Man. that uh, that Lana gets her get, uh, we'll see if this Times article uh, will have made an impact. Well, I think that you know, first of all, that you have an open invite <laughs> here. But what I was going to say was that when I had you on the last time and we talked about Gitzel and we talked about other situations, I mean, besides the... The, the, the heat that you get about, you know, your role, et cetera, though you are clearly doing God's work, I think you'd be surprised at the flack that I got from listeners who, um, from, from certain listeners who felt that I was totally off the mark, um, and that there really were two sides to this. And so it just brings me back to the beginning of the conversation, um, whether there, whether there is, is ever two sides. But I'm looking at this picture. And, and I'm listening to, besides your voice and, 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 and for whom you speak and the Rabbanim that were mentioned in this article who made that effort. 
And I'm looking at this picture of Rabbi Ari Siegel from Shalhevet, who was featured um, as part of the protest in that in that article. I'm looking at his picture and I'm saying, you know, these are very, very bright people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the issue of there are two sides to every story, uh, when when I speak about this issue, because this really gets the the the, the heart of the, the question that people have, which is, you know, is it is get refusal ever justified? Are there two sides to every story? So when I speak about this, I give the following example. Um, 50 years ago, uh, if a boss did something inappropriate with one of his uh, co-workers, right, uh, with a female co-worker, that was dismissed as boys will be boys, right? Uh-huh. That's what went on in the White House in the 1960s. Now we call that sexual harassment. It's something that our society does not tolerate under any circumstances. Mm. And so there was a shift in society from boys will be boys to sexual harassment, which is never justified. And I think it's that same shift that we need to have with regards to get refusal. We need to go from this attitude of there are two sides to every story to get refusal as a form of domestic abuse is never justified. And so I hope that we'll have that shift and that articles like this will raise awareness and sensitize the community to this issue uh, and that, that we'll, we'll, we'll start to have a consensus that get refusal is never justified. How many, how many cases are you dealing with right now? We work on about fifty five zero uh, active cases at any given time, and and the nine years that she's been waiting for a get that's an extreme. Um, you know, if if we give the average of our cases, it's certainly higher up there. Um, there's some cases that have, that have been going on for even significantly longer than that, but you know, this is one of the longest cases that we've been working on. Meaning, there, there are some cases that have been going on. You didn't even want to know <laughs> right. um, for for decades, and they they came to us only more recently, uh, and so those those cases are, are 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 hard for us to 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 address, particularly because the husband has had his feet in concrete mm. for the past five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty five years, wow. uh, and so then for us to try and move him is much much more difficult. Um, but yeah, this is certainly on the higher end. It, putting those extreme cases aside, the cases that we've been working on. Uh, or has been involved in this case since uh, 2006 or 7. Um, so, you know, we, we've been working on it for many, many years, and Israel Mayokin is, uh, is, is a difficult case for us to crack, but we will continue to apply pressure, and it will only increase. Is there, uh, it will only increase on him. Is it ever too late for, for a woman who is in Aguna to approach Ora and get help? Uh, no, it's definitely never too late. Um, and I'll also say that we never know when a case will get resolved. And sometimes in, in the darkest moments, that's when we, we lose faith. But Yeshua Hashem Teherifayim, that the salvation of God comes in the blink of an eye. And that's, that's really what happens in our cases, that suddenly something changes, something clicks, uh, someone says the right thing, uh, you know, point of pressure hurts, you know, hurts enough. Um, that that cases are resolved, and so uh, that's what we 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 dive in for in this case as well. That um, our efforts will have have that impact, and that uh, this, this case will be, will be resolved as well. Are you in any? Um, and you can tell me that you're not. But are you in a position to discuss the Gittel case at all, or is it something you prefer we leave alone? Which I respect. Um, I mean, I'm happy to to you know say that the the case is resolved. Um, the pressure was uh, very significant. Um, on on uh, on the you know former recalcitrant husband family, um, but I mean I'd rather just not speak about this specifically because like she wants to move on. There's no reason to continue uh, you know uh, 
discussing the, the pressure on the family, this and that, because, you know, the, 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 the issue has been resolved. No, I, I, and I hear that completely. Just to me, it was a very much a group effort, and you talk about um, the New York the New York Post article, and then the movement on Facebook and social media, etc. I mean, it re- to me, it really felt like there that this was you know it took a village so to speak. And so I wonder, and I guess you alluded to this before, but I wonder if Lana is going to have that same power of the village, and if that is going to help propel this forward. Yeah, I, I, that, that's that's a good question, and so it's a question that I hope that everyone asks themselves and you know considers. And I don't, didn't mean for this to be a plug, but considers you know going on the Facebook, joining our Facebook group, sharing the articles that we're sharing. Um, you know, again, with these cases, life is so complicated, and 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 uh, you know, there you never know who's going to be the right person, who's going to be the right shaliach, right? who's going to say the right thing or have the right impact, or you know, so just. Raising awareness and getting it out there can be so, so helpful. Right. Well, Rabbi Jeremy Stern, I thank you as always for, for joining me on the air. Um, I, hope, I hope that the next time you come on, we only have more good news to share and that it's not another, <laughs> it's not another Jews or Freaks article, though I like the way yeah. you put that. I'm not sure I would have been able to classify that myself, but I like the way you put that. <laughs> uh, you know, and people say, isn't it a Chilol Hashem? Uh, and so my feeling is that what... Mayor Kin is doing that's the Chilol Hashem. But it's a Kiddush Hashem for us to stand up and say, we will not tolerate this. We won't let it happen in our name. We will stand up on behalf of a Jewish woman who's being abused. And we will stand up on behalf of Halach, on behalf of Jewish law, and say, we won't tolerate this. That's a Kiddush Hashem. Right? We don't, we don't question, isn't it the Chilol Hashem, uh, for, you know, all sorts of major improprieties and won't name specific ones that happen in the Jewish community where, you know, we want there to be justice and we want abusers to be, uh, to be identified to protect, let's say, our children, right? Isn't that a Chilol Hashem? No, it's, it's, we, we have a responsibility to stand up for the most vulnerable in our society. And that's a Kiddush Hashem when we do that. Um, and so that's, that's, that's our approach in, in viewing these types of articles and the cycle pressure. That standing up for the right thing in the end of the day, uh, that's, that's a challenge. You're blaming the victim by, by blaming those who are, who are standing up for halach and standing up for a Jewish woman who's being abused. You're blaming the victim by saying that's a challenge. The challenge mm-hmm. is what Israel Mayokin is doing in violating halacha and refusing to give again, and now violating the cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom in, in, uh, in, you know, in practicing, uh, bigamy. So that's our attitude to it, and, and God willing, it, it really should be a Kedosh Hashem, and Kedosh Hashem, uh, the, uh, the case should be resolved soon. You should know, by the way, and, and with this we really have to close, that I, I made my daughters read this article, my, my older kids. <laughs> I made my, made my daughters read this article because I wanted them to be horrified. And, um, and also, it, it is, for lack of a better way to put it, it is a teachable moment as a parent, and it is something that, mm-hmm. That, you know, it's something that we need to bring to light and it's something that unfortunately needs to be discussed because Aguna is obviously a huge problem. Right. And if someone your daughters are ready to get married, they will sign the halachic cleanup. <laughs> I'm main. I, I, I agree with you on that. I agree with you. Anyway, Rabbi Stern, thank you so much for joining me. As always, I look forward thank to you. having you on again soon. All the best. You've been listening to That's Life here at the Nahum Siegel Network and, uh, the cough drop button has been used uh, numerous times during this show. By the way, the cough drop button is not a cough drop. Uh, for those people who are like, what is she talking about? It's a button that you press when you're having a coughing fit, and uh, you need to silence the mic for a moment. So, Avrami, you have to remind me. I have to Purell that when we are done. Anyway, the live lunch is going to start in a couple of minutes. I want to make sure to go through 
uh, a couple of things that we missed because we did not get to do our national holidays. I do want to let everyone know that today is Quirky Country Music Song Title Day. Yeah, exactly. Avram. I wish everybody could see Avram's face, but it looks a little bit like Kermit. You know, when Kermit like smushes his face a little bit. So uh, to that, I will give, obviously, Daniel Gordon a shout out because he is the country music guru here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And there are two songs that, to me, have quirky music titles. One of them is obviously Red Solo Cup, which if you haven't heard that song, Avram, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you have to have heard it. And the other one is I Found Love in the Back of a Cop Car, um, which is just a funny thing in terms of the fact that this guy got arrested and obviously there was somebody else there also. So that, to me, is pretty quirky. Anyway, I know you were missing that sound. I want to make sure to take care of this before we are up. Before we are done with time, because that's life, an entire episode should not go by without the cracking of a fortune cookie. And here we go. We never know the worth of water till the well is dry. Nice. We like this one, right? That's a good one. All right. The numbers, by the way, are 15, 6, 45, 12, 33, and 2. And when I go move my car, I'm going to play them. Anyway, let's go through the lineup for today so you know what not to miss. As I said, the live lunch starts at 11 o'clock. We start with brunch. We end with lunch. That's hosted by Nachum Siegel, only here on the stream. NachumSiegel.com. Stunt show at 1 p.m. Hosted by Gorf. Jordan B. Gorfinkel. You do not want to miss that. And then at 2 p.m., Throwback Thursday, encoring JMAM from years past. Buy the book. The encore for Buy the Book that um, we heard this week. We are encoring That's Life from last week. Am I correct? Correct. So that was the... I'm sorry? Oh, I didn't get to... Oh, I didn't... Oh, I skipped Homeward Bound. Homeward Bound, correct, is on before them. That is correct. That is an encore of Homeward Bound. By the book, actually, as we played this week, is That's Life. Um, the, the interviews that I did last week with the art director, the illustrator, and uh, Dr. Daniel Rose, who was the ABBA, as we said, of this creation, of the Corin Children's Sidor that has recently been launched. So if you did not hear the interview last week during That's Life or this week during By the Book, you can hear it today. At 5 o'clock. And then Michael Fragan on at 6 p.m. I heard with Adam Dichter. Is that correct? That is a great interview. And then Charlie Burnhout rounds out the entire day. Tomorrow morning, join Nachum as he hosts JM the AM from 6 to 9. NachumSiegel.com, JM the AM.org. Yes, you can hear the, tweak, the the chirping of the birds in the uh, in the nest outside. You can hear, you can't hear it? I can hear it just fine. Yes, those birds are coming around. They are the only ones who know that it is spring. Uh, Nahum and Malcolm will, honor be, will be on at about 7.40. And table for two tomorrow morning, Naomi will be joined by the Orthodox Union's Rabbi Moshe Elephant as they discussed why the OU has decided to certify Kinwa this year as OUP. An updated 2014 schedule is on our site. My thanks to Ruchama Foyerman King and Rabbi Jeremy Stern from GetOra.org. And I leave you today with Hassan Hatora by Baruch Levine. It is going out to Michael Eisenberg. And again, I'm wishing the entire family of Mazal Tov, knowing wholeheartedly, Michael, that Bubby and Poppy are incredibly proud. The live, the live lunch, I cannot talk today, starts in a few minutes. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. Do 
Oh, my God. 